This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. What is the world like today for the people who are frequently shocked, challenged and been at the forefront of changes that many see as outrageous? Are the rainbow people still changing their world for the better? I'm Malcolm Angus. Welcome to Outrageous, the program that investigates, supports and advocates for the rainbow people of New Zealand. Good day, listeners. This is Malcolm Angus once again with The Outrageous Show on 105.4 FM. And today I have an amazing guest, somebody that um, I didn't think would say yes to this interview. So that's a huge plus to start with. And this person is Danielle. Now, I'm going to get Danielle to introduce herself rather than I do it, but I have grown to enjoy Danielle's company and understand her passion for what she does because we are both members of the Pride Committee. And I'm going to leave it at that. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you, Malcolm. Uh, So... My name's Danielle. I am a counsellor here in Dunedin. I have a small private practice. I work as a contractor as well for Stopping Violence Dunedin. And I work with ACC clients as well. So, fairly busy. Very busy. And you've just launched into what you do right now. Um, Do you have a backstory? Or did you just come down to earth as you are today and start this work? No, I I have a very long backstory. I was born in South Africa and I lived there until I was 15. And then we immigrated to New Zealand in 1999. And I tried to acclimatise to New Zealand culture as best I could. Um lived in Auckland for about six years, left school, not really being all that engaged in school, um, and decided to do vet nursing. So I did a vet nursing qualification at Unitech, and then decided to come down to Dunedin for my sister's 21st um, one year and didn't really want to leave. It was snowing at the time, came down with my mum, and my mum and I decided that we wanted to live in Dunedin. Um, it's way better than Auckland, for sure. And so, yeah, we, we came down here in 2005, my mother and I, and I haven't really left. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about South Africa, where you lived, what it was like for you there, because I also began my life in Africa, so I'm quite interested in, in your experiences Sure. Um, So we lived in Durban. We lived about an hour outside of Durban in a town called Amanzam Toti. And I came from a pretty big family. Um, My father uh, was, I think, one of seven. And so we were very connected with our extended family. Most of us lived in and around the same area. Um, I grew up in a uh, in a household where there was some dysfunctionality, and um, it was it was a, a a 
a challenging a, ch- a challenging childhood as well because I started to probably at around 14 experience feelings um, towards females and my family were very religious as well. We were devout Christians attending church. Um, so we were, were faith-based and that included, you know, following the Bible. So I struggled a little in, this, in, in the family that I was raised in um, just because I had differing views and uh, I had a gay uncle and we were told not to kiss him. Um, my dad would say derogatory things about him. And so those were my first messages around um, queer people. So I had a lot of my own internalized homophobia on top of my um, attraction to women. So that was hard. So I did what everybody does <laughs> and I conformed and got a boyfriend because that was the type of thing that you did do. But shortly after that, we immigrated. So my experience in South Africa, I think, in a huge way has molded me in terms of how my family... Um, I guess the the perceptions that my family holds, I still hold some of those, but I have left, like I've taken some and left the rest. How was your education there? Um, we we had a we had a good time at school. I was I, in the shadow of my sister. She was she is incredibly intelligent and ten months older than me, so. I felt like the bar was pretty high, um, but I was more creative, so I followed drama, and I was really into history, and so drama and history were my two things that kept me engaged in school. Um, I had one year of high school before we left, and I found it really very painful to be at, to leave at 15 because I had I was horse riding in the weekends. I had friends since intermediate school, and I was very well... Um, I guess I was solid in my in my peer circle, my social circle, and I felt very uprooted leaving after. It wasn't even a year at high school. It was about nine months before we left. So I felt really uprooted. But my schooling in South Africa was actually really cool. Like, I did really enjoy it, and I was excelling at Afrikaans and Zulu. We, we, had, the, we had to take languages as well, and I... I really enjoyed my life. I didn't want to leave. I had a puppy too. So it felt like my life, I was like snatched up from what I was what I was enjoying, you know, what was an enjoyable life and, and really just plopped into a whole different culture at 15 when I didn't have a lot of resources or tools to deal with, you know, my emotions, let alone culture, new cultures. So... so- um, Afrikaans. So you you were you, you had three languages then. If you were learning Zulu as well, um, did you? You said you went horse riding. Did you feel uh, attached to the? How can I put it? It's not the landscape of South Africa. It's the wilderness of South Africa. It's the 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 other living things in South Africa. Um, did you feel a sense of amazement or did they just happen to be there and you took them for granted? No, I had um, 
a sense of amazement and we would go camping at Christmas and any holidays that were longer, you know, longer than a week, my dad would take us to game reserves. So we'd camp in game reserves. The game reserves that we camped in only had, like as far as predators, they had crocodiles and alligators and all that sort of thing. But the largest predator where we were staying, you know, was like, jackals and things like that we we would stay at game reserves where there'd be rhinos elephants um a lot of the like the herbivores not so many of the predators and like those were my fondest memories of south africa mm-hmm. like getting stuck in a bathroom for two hours because there's a rhino outside gra- grazing having zebras come and lick the barbecue in the morning hearing them grazing right outside our tent um you know like taking the boat out on uh, crocodile-infested waters. And we we did some crazy stuff. Um, and it it was unforgettable, actually. A lot of um, our game drives, like in the morning and then at night at dusk, it was some of the most profound experiences I had with, with large animals, especially rhino. Like, had a lot of encounters with rhino. And it was incredible. And... Um, not so much black rhinos because they're way more aggressive, but the white rhinos. So, and and that those are some of my best memories. Like I've still got pictures now um, that my mum's got stored of us standing and you know a rhino in the background early morning trying to smile but half still asleep. But we were so normalised to those that those types of animals. Mm, mm. Um, so we did probably take take the, take it for granted, I think, because having lived in New Zealand now and reminiscing on our. Um, Christmas and family vacations like we got to do the most amazing things and see the most amazing things my first um, male partner um, was a South African Um, he was studying in Cape Town when I first met him and uh, eventually um, I did fly to South Africa a couple of times and visited his family on a farm in Howick which you might no. Um, and as part of that trip, we went to the Drakensberg Mountains and stayed in a reserve there. And then we, hadn't, we had no guides, we were just doing our thing and um, went into the mountains, drove into the mountains, and I was really so taken up with the scenery and the landscape and the bush and the grass. And I found this great flattened circle in the grass, in the long grass, which must have been where some rather large animal had made its home for the night or its bed for the night. And um, for a reason that uh, I still can't really explain, I decided I would climb the Drakensberg naked so I took off all my clothes and <laughs> took off up the, up the mountain. But I just felt so free and the, the, the world around me was so beautiful there. Um, so that's an experience I have. And uh, also, of course, um, the farm in Drakensberg, it was an old Dutch house and uh, this man bred pigs. The father bred pigs. Very beautiful place, exceptionally beautiful place. Uh, 
my own memories of Africa are far more limited than yours because I left much younger when I was five or six. You arrive in New Zealand and you have to adjust yourself to the New Zealanders and their ways of life. You obviously keep going at school quite well. You're doing okay. And you're pretty smart if you can just decide, well, I'll become a vet nurse. Um, what what made you give that up? Um, so when I had my second child, I went back to work. And well, hang on, we've just leapt into a... <laughs> So, 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 I, so, so I, I got my vet nursing certificate and came back, came down to Dunedin and worked as a vet nurse for about six years. And I started to like more and more hanging out with the people in the reception with their animals when they'd come in more so than the operating theatre mm-hmm. assisting the vet in surgery. And I liked to hear about how they spoke about their pets and the relationships they had. And it was really interesting to see how people were in relationship with their pets and how they felt about their pets and seeing them move through really emotionally painful situations around euthanasia, that sort of thing. And I used to want to do the euthanasia euthanasia consults with the vet and a lot of the vet nurses were like, that's the last thing I want to do. But I wanted to be there in the room to be able to stand next to the people and to be able to hold space for them. I thought it was it was a privilege. And then it made me think, I can obviously tolerate being around people who are experiencing emotional pain. Maybe I can look at doing this as a job in terms of being a counsellor, working with people. So that was how I moved from vet nursing to wanting to be a counsellor. Okay. That's that shows a lot of um, curiosity and the capacity to extrapolate as well to think so deeply about the grief that you are witnessing and being involved in and realizing that you matter in these situations and that perhaps there is a chance for you to matter even more by talking to people who are suffering mm. and uh, in an area that perhaps you weren't that well acquainted with, I don't know. Um, but just before you started on this little story, about you mentioned about having a child. Mm. So there's a gap between leaving school mm. and um, having a relationship in which you mm. created a, a human being. Mm. Um, that must have been an interesting part of your life as well. Mm. Yeah? Yeah, it was. Um, I was married for around seven years, and um, it was an incredible partnership. And we were lucky enough to have two children. I'd never thought I'd have kids. I never wanted kids. Um, I didn't think that I was would be any good of a a parent with a child but um, when I met my partner at the time it just seemed like the right thing to do and it was fairly easy I got pregnant quite quickly Um, but yeah it it definitely had its struggles there was um, 
not so great times because my first child, there was a lot of birth trauma and I got postnatal depression. So there was a lot of challenges that came with parenting, but they're both eight and 10 now and I, I wouldn't have it any other way. And at the same time, at the beginning of our chat, you talked about a same-sex attraction. Mm. So that was throwing into, a, um, I suppose, your head uh, in terms of who am I, what am I doing, uh, am I being true to myself? Is these the sort of questions that perhaps many people ask themselves um, when they get into relationships in which they perhaps keep something back about mm. who they are from the person they love. Um, that's, I think, a huge challenge for many people, mm. that uh, we enter into relationships in which we can't expose the whole of us. Um, did you, in the end, sort that out and, and were comfortable with that for yourself and for your family? I um when my ex-husband and I had first met he knew me to be a lesbian because my um it, my girlfriend at the time introduced us. So he knew that I was queer from the get-go and I was very open about it throughout our whole marriage and understandably um I think we both got to the point where we were at an impasse and I just felt like a part of me, I, it wasn't alive anymore, and that was the part of me that I loved so much. Mm. And it was a sober reality, and it wasn't as if we just stopped loving each other. We, you know, we loved each other very much, so much so, and we loved our little family so much so that we didn't want to put our little family through anything, you know, that was going to be harder than it already was so mm. I think we both amicably came to an agreement that it's just best to stop as opposed to continue um, again this is all new to me and it's of course the audience is <laughs> uh, probably this idea of this sort of relationship is probably new to many people that you go openly into a heterosexual relationship even though you have come out as a lesbian. Mm. Um, I think that's an amazingly courageous thing to do as well. Um, not only the honesty of it, but the unknown of it. Um, and to come out as you have done, um, having sorted that, I guess, in, in many ways, and you look after your children still, which is wonderful. Um, what did you learn from that that has been helpful for you to apply in your own day-to-day -day work here about conflict and dissonance and mm. difficulty and truth? I think what I've learned is that with relationships, and this is something that my training has really helped me with too, is that you know even if there is rupture, there, is, there are always opportunities to repair. So even though relationships might seem unfixable and fragmented and in pieces if people are motivated and and they have the right intentions you know there there are opportunities to do repair work so my intention and my goal and this is the same uh with the clients that i work with is is the repair work 
and that's my goal with my kids and the co-parent relationship I have is that I I, I really do respect and um, still love my uh, ex-husband very much. I think the love will always be there because he's the father of my children. So that respect and that integrity and 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 that I guess that commitment to being open and honest and wanting to do repair work is that's my main aim because I want to role model that to my kids. I don't want them to see that relationships end and they end badly. I, I've had that in my own childhood with my father and, and my mother and I want to role model better. I want to role model that it doesn't have to end so badly. It can it can be repaired and it doesn't mean that repairing is that you have to be back together, not at all. It's just that you can repair the um, the respectful and the, the care, caring side of, of something. It, it doesn't have to all just be burnt in the dirt. No, it doesn't. And I, I don't want to in any way um, divert from this conversation, but I am immediately reminded of what Prince Harry is going through at the moment in terms of how he viewed his own parents' marriage and situation and was um, perhaps... Um, his own feelings and thoughts and his experiences as a child were overlooked um, by his father particularly um, in those circumstances, very peculiar circumstances, uh, trying to live within that um, institution. And it is an institution, it's really not a family. Um, and f try and work his way out of that safely for himself and his wife and his child, children-to-be. Um, so the work you're doing now, you've been doing for how long in Dunedin? I've been working as a counsellor for around five years, um, and yeah, it's it's an it's an honour and a privilege, and I love mm. it. Like I wake up every day, and even if I look at you know my timetable and I've got a full caseload, I'm like, let's get into it. I love right. it. Great. And a lot of my clients are rainbow, and that's I think why I'm so passionate is mm. that I get to be sitting in a room with people as they tell their, their story, uh, you know, and a lot of it is of injustice and well, pain. Well, you mentioned that their rainbow segues very nicely into the next mm. part of our interview, which is going to have to happen next week. Awesome. Because the time rushes along as it normally does when I'm talking to really interesting people. Um, so Daniel has been my guest. Um, telling me, uh, even though I have known her for some time, her life story, which I had not a clue about. Um, and um, Daniel's going to come back again next week, and we're going to talk about the Rainbow Community, Daniel's relationship with that, particularly um, in the work she's done with the Dunedin Pride. So this is Malcolm Angus. Thank you for listening today. You might want to just say farewell, Daniel. Farewell, everyone. Go well and take great care. Thank you very much. And next week we'll continue this interview. Uh, that's it for now for Outrageous. Thank you very much for listening.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.